0: listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. All right, listeners, welcome back to the show. We have a really special guest today that I'm super excited to have on. He's somebody that I've kind of been keeping up with from afar, bigger pockets for years, read his book been following his his videos and and applied a lot that I've learned from him in in my business. So tons of credit to him. He is the president and co-founder of the DeRosa Group. He's also the author of a book that Bigger Pockets published called Raising Private Capital that I highly recommend to anybody who's interested in, in, in building their real estate portfolio using other people's money. So, without further ado, Matt Faircloth, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, darling. It's an honor to be here. Awesome. So, can, let's just go ahead and kick it off. Can you tell us your backstory, how you got into it, and, and maybe what you're sitting at today?
1: Sure, man. Yeah, absolutely. It's perfect. And you'll know why in a second. My story and, and your office set up there. I, I went to Virginia Tech, got my degree in engineering and just was a traveling sales rep for an engineering firm and equipment company and sold a lot of their machines and factories all across the Southeast and, and then got transferred to Philly. All good, happy, not very, you know. I wasn't very happy with my career didn't feel fulfilled, but I was making enough to keep my lights on and stuff like that. Then my, my girlfriend, future wife, got me to read a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and she got me to start <laughs> playing a game that's sitting behind you right there in your, in your <laughs> studio called Cashflow, right? Oh. And I started playing Robert Kiyosaki's Cashflow game every other week with a couple buddies of mine. But I highly recommend that your listeners consider playing Cashflow. It still is a valid game. It was, written, it was created a long time ago, but it's still a very valid game because it's about how to get out of the rat race. And so I played that game and I learned a lot of the tools to do it in real life. So I eventually bought a three bedroom, one bath, lived in one of those bedrooms and rented out the other two bedrooms in my home. Each guy's paying me 500 bucks a month. My mortgage was 940. So I was making 60 bucks a month and living there nice. for free, which was amazing. And I had a full-time day job, you know, making a nice salary. So I was able to take that nice salary I had and throw every nickel I was making towards my credit cards, student loans, that whole thing. So I got bit by the bug, if you will, at that point. That's what turned me on to it. And I haven't looked back since soon after my girlfriend and I got married and I quit my job and started investing full time since then. That was 2005 and I haven't looked back since.
0: Awesome. So there's probably a lot that happened in between there. How how did you scale up going from your first house hack? what, What did you do next? I mean, how did you feel comfortable quitting your full-time job, going into real estate. What was your what was your income looking like? Were you flipping houses? Were you, did you have a substantial rental portfolio? You know, kind of. No, no,
1: no, we bought my, so my girlfriend and I bought a duplex in Philly. So I don't recommend people buying rental property with your girlfriend. And then also I borrowed money from her dad to do it. So I borrowed money from my nice. girlfriend's father. And then bought a rental property with my girlfriend while before we were married, right? <laughs> so real estate's not something you take lightly. So we were putting like her maiden name on the deed and stuff like that. And then we got married, <laughs> and made a do the maiden name thing, and all. It was a mess. But I borrowed thirty grand from her dad to do the oh, deal, right? Nice. So those are our two rentals. It was the home I used to live in, and that duplex were the two rentals we had when we quit when I quit my job. The biggest thing we did, Sterling, was that we figured out how to do some of this crazy novel concept. Your listeners might not understand what I'm talking about, but we did something called living below our means. Yeah, they so, hadn't you know, heard of that. Yeah, No, not familiar. <laughs> not familiar, Matt. Um, my, my income is 10000 a month and my expenses are 20000 a month, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So we bought a house that was half of what we could afford. We, you know, lived lean, man. We kept driving older, beat up cars. We didn't take crazy vacations or anything like that. We just lived lean, and we were able to find a way to live on her salary alone. So most people in America, God bless them, are, are spending every nickel they make. We found a way to spend a lot less than what we were making, and it takes spousal alignment on that. It took it Absolutely. took both of us to buy-in because if she wanted to live in a bougie half million dollar house and I was okay living in a little townhome, right? Then we're, we're not aligned, you know, and there's, there's no why there, but we were aligned in what we wanted. Our alignment was, okay, we want long-term wealth, we want long-term success. So we're going to live in a house that's way cheaper than what we need. And we lived in like a blue collar C-class area, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. you, you know, it kind of, kind of funky neighbors, you know. Don't look that guy in the eye, kind of thing, you know. So <laughs> how,
0: that's a topic. That's a topic that comes up a good bit, and it's definitely it's something that I went through with my wife, and I think a, a lot of our listeners sh- kind of struggle. How did you get that spousal alignment? How did you get your wife as as gun ho? She's already
1: on board, brother. She gave me a rich
0: step. She got me to rich oh, support. Man. So so you were the you tag know? along, nice. Yeah,
1: no, I'm the convert. I'm the gotcha. convert. I was spending every nickel that I made and stuff like that. I'm the one with 30 grand worth of credit card debt when she met me. You know, yeah. I'm the one that was just you know like I remember 1.4. We before I met her, I I remember one point in my life I had $17 to my name in my checking account for like two <laughs> weeks until I got paid again. Like it's $17 sitting there. I'm like, oh geez, ramen noodles, I guess. But I realized once I got a taste of the other side of it, it is much better to be financially frugal and, you know, and just to have some money in your account and to not spend every nickel that comes in the door. And that, so she was aligned with that. I was the one that had to realize it was a better way to handle finances and not just blow everything that came in the door. or just not even think about it. You know, cause I was just like, oh, I'm just manifesting more money and if I need money, it shows up and I just happily have everything I need and all that. Not really being financially solvent or financially savvy. This is, I'm dating myself. This was
0: 20 years ago. Sometimes the more you make, the worse that gets. Cause you think, oh, I could just make more, you know? I know people that are making 30 grand a month and that are broke. Right.
1: You know? They're making thirty grand a month, man. But they got a ten thousand dollar house payment. They got five thousand dollar this payment, that payment. They got they got kids in private school. They live in like a like a nine out of ten school system, but their kids are in private school. <laughs> you know, you're paying forty grand a year per kid to put your kid in private school. No, nothing's wrong. With private school, but right. you got to just look at your budget. If you're not willing to take things off your budget in exchange for you being long term financially free, you really might not have true wealth alignment for yourself you know and if you're not willing to live below your means or make sacrifices now so that you can live a, a way bigger life in the future i don't know and it's it takes a lot of alignment with your spouse to get there and it's sure. it's rare to have both spouses in on that because some spouses are like no i need this bmw you know? <laughs> we need to go to tuscany for three weeks for vacation listen that sounds amazing and all that but maybe we wait another year or two on that so we can save up a little bit and get ourselves out of debt you know yeah Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I was lucky enough that she was aligned already. I commiserate with people who are not, but that's the first thing you got to do. If you're married and you want to invest full time, your first thing you got to do is speak to your spouse to get alignment about, we might have to make a few sacrifices. And those two sacrifices are either going to be time or money and likely both. Meaning I might have to go and do some things on a Saturday night or on a Monday night when I get home from work, I might have to go and look at some deals or underwrite some stuff or go listen to a podcast or listen to you go on a webinar or something like that. I might have to invest extra time outside of my day job and you have to be okay with that spouse. And maybe you can join me. Or we might have to live below our means or take some of the money we're making and put it towards or sock it away or whatever. But time and money are the two sacrifices that your spouse has to be okay with you making if
0: you really want to be successful in this business. Absolutely. So you just quit a new job. You have two properties and you were living off of your, your wife's income. So yep. what's, what's the next move? You what's our timeline time
1: here? here? It was '05. We got married in September of 05. Actually, you know what's you know, so strong I was married in September '05. 05. I stayed at my job until December. So I quit my job in December. So New Year's, new Year's Eve was my last day. And so January 1st, 2006 was my, was my first day working for myself. So that was it. And then I got into, what did we do? We ended up selling the duplex we had in Philly that had my wife's maiden name on it. And so we did a 1031 exchange, which is where you buy, you sell it sure. and you trade up into some larger assets and stuff like that. But it was wacky because it still had her maiden name on it, which was right. maybe the whole fun legal thing to, to get that transferred and stuff. We sold that and bought two, four families in New Jersey. On a ten thirty one exchange, so it's a total of eight units. There's a video on my YouTube page about how I turned those two four families into twenty units and, and then sold those. Like I, I bought more and more down the block and everything. I like got that. it's a crazy story. So it's really how I turned a duplex into twenty units, and that that's the story. But it, it took like eight years, but we made it happen. Anyways, so we bought those. Got into some fix and flips. It was a good time to do flips back then. We we did well with fix and flips. Bought a super dilapidated beater uh, beater up house in my neighborhood where I lived. Which when you talk about when we talk about interesting deals that kicked our butt, I'll tell you that story. I think yeah, you're going to ask me that question later, so I'll I'll save that story for that one. So just bumped into a few walls. Bought some rentals and that, but weren't very aligned and goal focused. Just did deals, did whatever came across my plate, and wasn't focused. Just kind of. You know, moved in a lot of different directions. We really gained a lot of traction when we started getting into small multi. And that was, that was after the crash.
0: Okay, so that was my next question. Tell me about the crash. How did that affect your holdings? How were you affected by
1: 2008? So, you know what's funny, Sterling, is from what I remember, everybody saw it coming. Everybody saw it coming, but also nobody saw it coming. And so it was one of those things where people kept saying things like, is this thing going to crash? This thing feels a little propped up. This is really hot and heavy. People kept saying those kinds of things. And like then they're saying, like they're saying now, it is. It was, yeah. but it's, it was a different market then. From what I remember then, it was so easy to get money, like, you know, just a whole no money down. I bought a uh, four family, right? On 80% first mortgage. second mortgage on a negative amortization, meaning like the full monthly interest on the loan was $1,000 to make it up to $1,000, but they would let you pay $600. So let you take 600 bucks and pay that towards interest. And the other $400 you owed them for interest would just get rolled into the back of the loan. So your principal and your mortgage would go up $400 a month. Oh, wow, so you're going man. the wrong way. It's called negative amortization. I don't even the, think you can get that yeah, anymore. They don't do loans like
0: that anymore. <laughs>
1: no, I don't think so. They should, and they never should have. But I did, you know, because I was, you know, stupid or whatever. I, you know, <laughs> so I, I did that back then because it was up in my cash flow, you know, and that's how it was presented to me. And it made sense at the time, and we made cash flow in the property, but you know, and just getting a second, a second mortgage, got five percent down rental property. Can you imagine? Yeah. No doc loans, everything like that. So. That's it, it needed to crash to correct a lot of that stuff because the money was just flowing in the streets back then. And because people could buy rental properties on such low money down, that's what inflated the price. Because remember, when people buy, they're buying on monthly payments and how much they got to come out of their pocket on. When you look at an apartment building or a rental, like say a single family home, if it's 20% down, you're saying, okay, I've got to lay 20% down. Where's that? 16,000 going to come from. Okay. I got to find that. It's going to be 16,000 down and it's going to cost me $800 a month to own this property. It's really what people look at. Right. You know, now you can say, oh yeah, you're right. They look at property value, they look at cap rates, they look at rents. But really a lot of times when people you know, are buying a car, they look at the same thing this is what the monthly payments are going to be. right? So they buy homes on, this, on the same method. And so because you're able to buy rentals on such low money down back then, it really drove up the market. on on rentals because people could get in a 3% down, 5% down. So your ROI on the property or your cash flow percentage was artificially inflated. Does that make sense? Your cash on cash. Yeah. Your cash on cash, not your cash flow. I'm sorry. Your cash on cash was artificially inflated because you had such little cash into the deal that, you know, so what I'm only making 300 bucks a month on a three family. I only laid like five grand down to buy this place, you know? So my cash on cash is through the roof. So arguably the numbers made sense there, but when you sort of really look back on it. You're like, this is nuts, you know, yeah. that, that everything's so over leveraged and overheated. I'm not seeing the same thing now. And you're right that people, like, people are saying the same things now. It's going to crash, but I feel like it, it's, it's beholden. It's the same conversation that you have. If you ever go to Atlantic city or Vegas or something like that, and you go to the roulette table and you find one that hasn't hit double zero in a long time. Right. <laughs> you find one that hasn't hit hasn't. It's like one of roulette's like, hey, this, this one hasn't hit red for a while. Yeah. So it, what is it? That means it's due. Yeah, you know? that's that's not it's how statistics
0: due. work. <laughs> and it
1: it is, but it's also not how economies work. In that and that, but it does. And just because it happened in oh in eight doesn't mean it's going to happen the way that it did now. I do think that we're due for a correction or at least a slowdown, but I don't see it. Just, I don't see the fundamentals that it's propped up like it was last time, you know? I don't know. What do you you think? My crystal ball is broken, right? So So I I have no idea what's going to happen in this market, but uh, I'm curious what you think the market's going to do.
0: I certainly don't think we're going to have another 2008 in in the near future. I, I do think it, there will be a slow correction, and I, I already think it's it's started to slow. If you look mm-hmm. at you know days on market, a, a sales of houses, and stuff like that, I'm not afraid of it. I'm positioning myself with all of my investments to weather the storm. You know, everything I buy is on long term fixed debt. It's all cash flowing, so I'm not afraid of it. I mean, I and I hate to say this because it, it sounds terrible, but I, I welcome it. I mean, everything's going to go on sale. There's going to be a ton of deals out there and it's only- Yeah.
1: Well, I don't know if the legs are going to get cut. There were properties, again, pre-crash, there was stuff selling for $80,000, $90,000 a door. Here, I'm sitting in Trenton, New Jersey. This is where we got our real, this is where we really got our legs underneath us when I first got started, was in Trenton. And so when I first got started, people were buying stuff for $70,000, $90,000 a door but after the crash stuff started selling for 15 to 20,000 to 30,000 a door right i just sold a lot of my portfolio here in trenton recently and i sold it for 60,000 so it's not back up to 90 it's back up right. but it's been a nice healthy appreciation in most markets and the stuff that i bought pre-crash cash flow the whole time like rents didn't dip in that so to your point i'm just going to keep doing stuff that makes fiscal sense and if it does slow down, I'll just keep cash flowing it through the slowdown.
0: So you, you know, said earlier, you you hit your stride after the crash. What did you do different?
1: Focused on rentals, focused on raising equity. We kind of got stalled out, right? When we first got started, we, you know, and, and this is 2007, eight, somewhere in there, we had really used a lot of our own capital. So at mm-hmm. that point, we had an office building that I'm, I'm sitting in my office building now. We had uh, a couple of small apartment buildings. We had a like a smattering of single family rentals and stuff like that. And we had financed a lot of that with our own cash and had just scaled up and grown it, you know, organically and everything like that. But the problem is when you're using your own money for your business, at some point you run out of money and on, even on the run up, we were able to refinance some properties a few times and take those proceeds from the refinances and reinvest those and everything like that. But when things started to hit the fan, you couldn't do that anymore. Right. So we stalled out and really didn't do much from 08 to 09 because nobody did, you know, and then people that can tell you, oh, I bought lots of properties in 08 and and nothing sold in 08. Like people were just trying to make sure the sky wasn't going to fall in 2008, you know, The, the market didn't start at least getting live again until like 2010, you know, and that's when a lot of people that you talk to started, got started was in right. 2010, 11, 12, somewhere in there, right? But things like short sales were common back mm-hmm. in 09s. So we did a lot of those. We just don't how to play the market. And then what really got us our stride was when we had developed a bit of a reputation for ourselves and knowing what we we're doing and doing it for five years straight. And we ran a RIA club in Trenton. and people started coming to us and asking if we could partner with them. And then eventually private money started showing up. And these are just people. We weren't even soliciting it. We didn't know how to structure it. People were coming to me saying, "You know, hey Matt, I see you're investing in real estate. I'd love to invest in real estate too. I just don't the times. So what should I do?" So we talked to a lawyer, and he said, "Like, well, you got to just structure a, a joint venture, or structure a private placement, structure an LLC, and have them come in as a limited partner." And so, what, through talking to attorneys and through figuring it out, we started doing super small deals, and a lot of people that just first got in started syndicating. 100 unit apartment buildings in 2012. We didn't do that. We started with super small deals. And that's like a big thing for your listeners. You don't have to do big apartment building deals to be successful in this sure. business. Everybody thinks that that's what they want to be doing, but they don't realize that you can be bringing investors into all kinds of real estate stuff. Right. And so we started bringing in investors that wanted to put their money somewhere. They didn't trust Wall Street anymore. They wanted to just do something else. And so my first private equity investment was $50,000. Got put in 50K and partnered and, with us on it. And we now, just, how, how did you structure that? Just formed an LLC. Just yeah. formed an LLC. Yeah, I was the managing member. He was a, just a member.
0: And I have a half my portfolio. I have private investors and we have it structured the same way. Yep. So I'm curious at what point, seeing as how you're the expert in raising private capital, I'll ask you, at what point do you have to do something different? At what level is that not okay just to go and form a generic LLC where I'm the managing member and they're a limited partner? Sure. Well,
1: it it becomes like an sec thing. If your partner's not active at all, right. Okay. The sec define,
0: are they not active by the nature that they're limited? No, you can give them, you give them a
1: role in the company. To give them something to do. Even if they don't have voting rights, you still give them something to do. And for my guy, I, at that point I didn't have enough portfolio to qualify for my own mortgages without a day job. So my investor was co signing on the loans for me. Right. Okay. That right there, that's being active. You okay. know, that made him not let me that made him not a hundred percent passive. Even though he was in the, he didn't have voting rights, he was still Enough owner and, and on the loans for the banks and so and we also documented the way that he was set up in the operating agreement, so that made him an active partner in the company at least to the point where the SEC would view it as not a security. Okay. And that's what you want. You don't want his role to be a security in the company. Got it. Because if it's a security, then you got to sell. You got to run it to the SEC.
0: Okay. Even if it's even if it's a
1: dollar, it's a, there. There is be. This is a misconstrued thing. People think that, oh, as long as I do deals less than a million, or as long as they do deals less than a hundred grand, or as long as they give me a big enough check, whatever, whatever you know, superstitions are out there, none of these are true. It just if you were selling them security, the SEC gets involved. That's it. Yeah, so yeah. make what you're doing not a security. By giving right? them
0: some active role, well, no matter how. There's
1: four things that have to be met for something to be a security. Okay? The first two are obvious. It has to be an investment of money. But what that means is, sweat is not a security. Okay, yeah. it's got to be investment of money. It's got to be for the expectation of profit. Meaning, your uncle Charlie can't give you ten grand as a gift. He doesn't expect a return on it. Then that's not equity. Okay, that's why. That's how things like Kickstarter and, and those organizations and GoFundMe are able to operate without a secure. They're not. Those are not SEC regulated organizations either. Because you're donating. You know, even if it's to get a company up and running. If it's for a Mm -hmm. business, it's not equity because it's not for the expectation of profit, right? right? Number three is in a common enterprise. So what that means is you and your equity investor have to be in the same venture, right? In the same company. So if your equity investor loans you money or if they're over here and they have different interests than you do, then they're not at a common enterprise. So that's why any loan is not a security. That's why okay. loans are autom- automatic left table and not security. That's an easy way to get started is to structure everything around private loans. Even yeah, if you give your lender part of your upside potential, a joint venture, that's still not a security
0: Okay.
1: because they're a lender. They have different goals than you do. One of their goals is to make the most money they can. And that might mean you not performing on your loan. That's not a right. common enterprise. Okay. The fourth thing is through the efforts of another. So an investment of money with for the expectation of profit in a common enterprise through the efforts of another. Okay. Right. Those four things are security. Through the efforts of another means that this investor is making their money, making their profit only through your efforts. So if there is efforts that they're doing, or if there is a finger that they're lifting, or something that they're doing to involve, to be involved in, then if it's only you, then it's a security. But if they're doing something, even if it's something small, it's not a security because they're, they're contributing in some way. So the secret is give them something to do. My guy was personally guaranteeing the loan. He was helping me audit the books. He was coming down and walking the properties every here and again. So if you go and syndicate five investors to go buy a bunch of apartment buildings, then yeah, that's a security. But if you have one partner giving you you know, you front all the money and we split the profit and I'll do, and this is, I, I see it happen all the time in fix and flips where, you know, money person comes in, I put up all the money, you do all the work, we split the profit. Likely the money person is at least involved in, in keeping the books or doing something in the company. That's not a security. If they're lifting a finger at all, it's not just through your efforts, it's through their own efforts too got it so is that what you
0: primarily like to do is is what i did we've since
1: grown into syndications years ago but that's how i got started was by doing more equity partnerships let's call them that versus syndications
0: so what does your portfolio look like today if you don't mind me asking we have 750 units in
1: four states
0: okay cool
1: yeah so some of that's our, my original portfolio when I first got started in New Jersey. And then the bulk of that is small and mid-sized multifamily in North Carolina, Kentucky, and Pennsylvania.
0: Okay. Why did you choose those markets?
1: Well, Pennsylvania, I'd, like to, I'd love to say that, you know, oh, it's completely because we researched it and because <laughs> we're brilliant. No, I, I used to, I actually wrote an article for Big Brother Pockets years ago called Why Will Not Invest More Than 30 Minutes Away From My House. You know, God. and that's the article, so not true anymore because it's got sure, a plane. Sure. I got off a plane yesterday from Kentucky, and I was like, you know, three hour flight from my house, right? You know, everything like that. So, anyway, we originally were investing in Trenton only, and I had built a whole business around Trenton, and we expanded to Philadelphia. Then, Philadelphia got too expensive. And so we started pushing further into Pennsylvania and I found Lancaster as a market that's really solid. I love it there. It's, it's got good economic fundamentals and the prices made sense. The economy made sense and the prices made sense. So we made a second home to invest, a place to invest there. We've done quite a few deals and built relationships there. Then we expanded our team and it became less of a one-person operation or a two-person operation with my wife and I. And we got into larger and larger projects. And that's when we started researching markets and finding markets that made long-term fiscal sense that had good fundamentals. And that's how we got into North Carolina and Kentucky, A, because they weren't as competitive at the time. Like there's not everybody and their mother were, you know, weren't buying there, right? Sure. And the fundamentals were there. So I invest for fundamentals and the fundamentals were there, but the prices weren't, hadn't caught up with the fundamentals yet.
0: Gotcha. What would you say your biggest home run is?
1: Biggest home run... Depends. So I've got a bunch of flips that, that have been phenomenal home runs where we just bought right, were smart about the renovations, created massive value through the renovations that we did and reaped that value out through the through the property sales. You know, mm. biggest, biggest wins I can think of Sterling were properties that I made, you know, like like significant income from or significant shots in the arm on flips and then had zero dollars in. And I've had a few of those where I had no money in the deal. And we still walked out with an enorm- with a really really nice check. And so those are slam dunks. I mean, you can't you can't beat that. A lot of my most of my rentals do well. If you give a rental long enough, it'll perform well. Right. And that's what's great about rental real estate. It's extremely forgiving. Flips are extremely unforgiving. Sure. Rentals are extremely forgiving.
0: Yeah, definitely. What's your biggest disaster? You have any? You lost no, money? I got on? some.
1: Pro- I got. Some, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll tell a quick. I know I've been talking a lot, but I'll tell a quick story. Right. The town I lived in, I used to live in, in South Jersey, and I drove past this house all the time. It was just it was one dilapidated house in my hometown, and I'd be like, man, somebody's got to do something about that place. Somebody's got to do something about that place. And Finally, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do something about that place, and so I did. I looked, it up, looked up the name on public record, and it was a really funny spelled name. It's a funny name, right? And then to protect the innocent, I won't say the name, but it was a really odd name. And so I Googled it, I Googled the name and I looked on a thing called Zaba search, Z-A-B-A search. And you can pretty much find people's names and phone numbers on there. I looked on Zaba search and it didn't show up. I'm like, that's weird. So there's there's nobody by that name. So then this title company had been banging on my door trying to get my business. Like, hey, we want your title work and stuff like that. It's like, hey, you know what? Here, help me with this. Here's an address. Find out who the owner is. It turns out the name in public record was spelled wrong, nice. right? So I typed it in the right way in Zaba search and two names came up. One of them was in Poughkeepsie, New York. So I called the guy in Poughkeepsie and he's like, I'm like, hey, I'm calling about this house in South Jersey. He gave me the address and he was like, yeah, oh, that's my grandfather's house. He's like, why are you, you know, what do you know about that? I'm like, yeah, well, guess what your grandfather's house looks like now, you know? <laughs> and so through a lot of rigmarole through the probate courts and through all kinds of mess, I was able to acquire that property from him. Right? He was able to take probate to the property. And long story, and it's an even crazier story on how the house was sitting dilapidated for that long and had to do with some relatives of his that were living there unbeknownst to him. Grandfather had passed away and relatives were still living there that were just like paying the taxes and paying the expenses on the property, but then they just moved out one day. And so the property went into tax foreclosure. So we bought it. Problem was throwing. I didn't know what I was doing. So I got into this flip, and I started to unwind it. Started to like take it apart, and and I put a new roof on it. And I found I was like, man, this 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 property's leaking. So I put a roof. I, I put a new roof on it. And man, this place is leaning in one direction. So let me jack up that one side of the house. Then I realized the reason it was leaning is because it was, it was the foundation was sitting on dirt. Like the 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 woods of so the sills were sitting on dirt. There's no foundation in that corner of the house. So. I probably threw 20, 30 grand into this house before I realized that it needed to get torn down. So oh, yeah. I just got in and just muddled my way through it and butted my house up, my head up against the walls a bunch of times and everything like that. And I was like, finally, tear it down. So I ripped it down and built a new home, stick framed a new house on the, on the lot. That's when we, we were successful and we were able to sell it for a great number and did well with it. The problem was we lost money because it sat for too long. So my interest killed me and all that money I threw into the house right. that I ended up, I put a new roof on a house and then ripped it down. What are you doing? <laughs> right. You know? So the problem was I didn't begin with the end in mind and I should have walked the house and saw this place is functionally obsolete. The ceilings are a little low. The stairwell feels a little funny. This house just feels weird. And so I should have just said, you know what? Let me just, I'm not going to be able to sell this house. That's beginning with the end in mind. I'm not going to be able to sell this home in the future. So let me just quit being unrealistic and just rip it down. And so that's what I should have done. I didn't do that until I got about halfway done. And so beginning with the end in mind is extremely important in this business. So I ended up losing about thirty grand, which is about what I put into it, and in sunk cost. And if I had just began with the right way to begin with, I would have made what interest I had sunk into. I made that back in profit. Would have won there. And I would have had, wouldn't have been a new roof on the house or anything like that. So yeah, that's probably my worst deal ever. <laughs> I got plenty of, I got plenty of other bad deals. I can tell you almost every one of my bad deals are flips.
0: Yeah. You know, do you, do you, you still flip thing. today?
1: I got one more that I'm wrapping up right now that I started a while ago. I'm wrapping it up. It's a great project. It was a really fun house, but I can't wait to get it finished with. And that yeah. problem is darling, I enjoy flips. I really like, it. Yeah. you know, it's so great just creating Sure. new space and modernizing and taking walls down, you know, you feel like, in, like, in, like a real estate artist in some ways, you know, right. but real estate is not supposed to be exciting and, you know, twisty turning like that. It's supposed to be kind of boring and the rentals sure. are kind of boring or they should be anyway. So
0: yeah, definitely. Yeah. So what advice do you have for somebody out there who's thinking about getting started or maybe just got started and looking to scale? What do you have for our listeners? What's sure?
1: well? You know, I, I made a lot of mistakes when I first got started, and that's why, uh, that's why I have a lot to teach, is because I did a lot of things the wrong way. Now I do them the right way and I do well. But what I did the wrong way when I first got started was I tried to go in a lot of different directions. I was like, I'm going to do flips and wholesales and short sales, and I'm going to, you know, build new construction, and whatever. And I tried all these different directions of places to go in real estate, not realizing that had I just, I, I, I would have done much better if I just stayed focused and yeah. gone in one direction. I would have 10 x much faster than I did. I've already 10 you know several, several times over now, but that, that only happened after I stayed focused.
0: So the next is our, our radio round. We just have three quick questions to help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. First, one is, what's your favorite book? It does it be a real estate book or any book? I would say nonfiction. Okay. There's a book I
1: read years and years ago. And, and I mean, I, I'll go a little deep with you. It's a spiritual book and okay. it's called Conversations with God. And it absolutely okay. changed my life, changed my outlook on the world, changed my outlook on my life. And I'm glad you asked that question and not made it a real estate book because everybody's going to say Rich Dad, Poor Dad and everything like that. So, <laughs> yeah. um, and Rich Dad, Poor Dad it is it's a great business book. The conversations with God gave me an entirely new outlook to my spirituality, to my faith, and to the way I view the world and all my personal relationships and everything. So
0: well, that's going kind of a great
1: book. And I've read it many, many times over again.
0: I would say that spirituality is as important in this business and in, and in any business as anything else. Right, uh, you
1: gotta have faith, man, and that is, that's, it's not faith in what; it's well, just faith in yourself, faith in whatever it is is gonna carry you forward, and faith that your next your next meal is coming, even if you don't know exactly where where it is. Your next check or what your next whatever it is is on the
0: way. When Joe just asked me what my best ever real estate advice was, I, I, I told him, "I said, focus on your mindset. That's what's gonna yeah. carry you through." There's so many naysayers out there and, and you know, a lot of times it's the people that love you the most that are closest to you telling you it's not gonna work. And that, you know, that's hard to persevere through if you don't sharpen your saw and have it work on that correct mindset and, and your spiritual health plays into that more than anything. So mm-hmm. I think yeah. that's a great answer. It
1: gets you through the dark times because if you're in this business long enough, you'll have plenty of dark times. You know, you'll get stolen from, you'll get your teeth kicked in, you'll get robbed, you'll get disappointed. And my spiritual side is what has gotten me through those times.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So the next question, what's your favorite quote?
1: Henry Ford, whether you think you can or you can't, you're right.
0: Awesome. Awesome yeah. And what's your favorite thing to do outside of real estate? Outside of work.
1: So I got two young kids, I got a 6-year-old and a 2-year-old. So I love hanging out with my family. I like making wine, I play poker, and that's one of my fun hobbies. You know, I'm I'm not the, I'm, I'm pretty good at it in that. Those are just some fun things I do in that, but mostly hang out with my kids.
0: Awesome. You have to hear. So, look, Matt, I'm really glad you joined us today. I learned a ton. I know our listeners are going to this interview as, you know, as, as much as I was expecting it would be, and I knew it would be. Where can our, our listeners learn more about you, or how can they get in touch with you?
1: Sure, just go to derosagroup.com, D E R O S A G R O U P.com, derosagroup.com. They can link over to my YouTube page through that website. They can buy a copy of my book, Raising Private Capital, through that website. They can also buy it on Amazon and in Bigger Pockets. There's a link on my website to buy it. That just takes you to Bigger Pockets to buy it. They can find out about my wife's podcast called The Real Estate Invest Her Show on our website as well. In that, so, And if they're interested in hearing more about what, how we work with passive investors, they can get that at derosagroup.com also.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks again. And I look forward to meeting you in person in February. I'd love that, Sterling. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Cressworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at CrestwordCapital. Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at RentRollRadio.com or Sterling at CrestworthCapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing.